0: Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Benall. Hello there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of Banal of America Audio, Season 2. It is March 3rd, 2007, and this week our guest is Paul Schaffskin, author of The Boy Who Invented Television, which is the amazing story of Philo T. Farnsworth, who, as the title of Paul's book indicates, Conceived of the electric television as a mere farm boy, solved the riddle that science and industry was struggling with at the time on how to make television a viable medium. We're going to explore the life and times of Philo T. Farnsworth here in today's episode. We're going to talk about what made his workspace so innovative and successful, his battles with financiers over what to do with television once the working model had been completed, his war with RCA, the radio giant of the time, that wanted to be at the forefront of television and found itself at odds with Philo Farnsworth, who owned the patents for TV. Plus, we're going to find out about Philo Farnsworth's post-television work, some amazing and pioneering research in thermonuclear fusion, and, of course, tons and tons more. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Paul Shaskin, let me tell you a little bit about him. Paul Shaskin has led a life of multiple and diverse pursuits. After graduating from Antioch College in 1973 with a degree in communications, He worked in the television industry in Hollywood and earned an Emmy nomination for his pioneering work in computerized videotape editing on the ABC TV comedy Barney Miller. His first book, published in 2002, was the biography of Philo T. Farnsworth, titled The Boy Who Invented Television. He is now researching and writing Defying Gravity, the parallel universe of T. Townsend Brown, which was originally envisioned as a sequel to the Farnsworth biography, but has since taken on an almost unimaginable life of its own. A native of New Jersey, Shaskin now lives with his wife Anne, three cats, and an old pickup truck near Nashville. His website on Philo Farnsworth is www.farnovision.com, F-A-R-N-O-V-I-S-I-O-N.com, and his overall website is www.49chevy.com. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on January 12, 2007. Paul Shatskin talking about The Boy Who Invented Television on Banall of America Audio, Season 2. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banall of America Audio. I want to welcome as our guest this week Paul Shatskin. He is the author of the amazing book, The Boy Who Invented Television, a story of inspiration, persistence, and quiet passion. It's all about Philo T. Farnsworth, the inventor of television, and it follows the journey from the original thoughts that Philo had on putting together television to the to the creation of it, and then the amazing story and battle that went on once television became a viable commercial opportunity for some of the big corporations out there. I had the pleasure of interviewing Paul at the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference, where he tore down the house with an amazing presentation on T. Townsend Brown, and anyone who heard the Crash Retrieval Conference special may remember... We asked Ryan Wood for some post-conference thoughts, and Paul Shaskin's presentation was one of the ones he said stood out as just an amazing presentation. After I got a chance to read the book here, The Boy Who Invented Television, I wanted to get Paul back on to do an extended discussion here on Philo T. Farnsworth. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start out first uh, before we get into Philo Farnsworth. Let's talk about Paul Shafskin, Your background, your bio. I was surprised to see here that you worked in television for quite some time and um, Barney Miller, and that was pretty amazing. So, uh, tell us about your background, how you came upon the story, and everything.
1: I I graduated from college in 1973. So I'm kind of an old guy now. And, and during the time that I was in college at a branch of Antioch College in Maryland, I spent most of that time doing what we at the time called Gorilla Video. Mm-hmm. This was when the very first Sony Video Porta came out. Nowadays, you know, everybody's got a portable video camera that fits in their pocket. But in those days, it was it was a revolutionary concept to be able to have a video recorder that could basically fit on a backpack and that you could carry into a community and, and do programming that way. Yeah. And that was what I had specialized in. And our guiding light, the Bible of that movement in the early 1970s, was a publication called Radical Software. And you can actually find those publications online now. I think it's either radicalsoftware.com or .org or Raindance Foundation. Of course, if you if you google radical software you can find those publications. Yeah. And just as I was graduating in the summer of 1973, an issue of Radical Software that had been assembled in San Francisco came out. And that is where I first learned of a man named Philo T. Farnsworth. I just learned a little bit in that issue of Radical Software about the seminal work that he had done in the 1920s and how he went on to fight with RCA over over the patents that he obtained for the original concepts of electronic television. And I kind of stored that away. I, I think I may have made a mental note, that it did seem odd that up until that point, I had never seen any popular war. There's no folklore associated with the inventing of television, which is only curious because television is perhaps the most ubiquitous appliance in modern culture. Yeah. But there, there is really very little war associated with its origin. So I've always had a kind of a a backstage interest in matters of invention. I like to tell the story about when I was in the third grade and my mother was concerned that I wasn't reading enough, and she dragged me off to the library to get a book, and the book that I brought back was a Thomas Edison biography. So I, I guess I've always had some sort of deep-seated interest in, in matters of invention. So when I read this story about Philo T. Farnsworth, that was something that stuck with me. And later that same year, I went out to California right after I graduated from college. Uh, eventually, as you said, I found my way to working on the Barney Miller Show. But during, I think, that first fall when I was out in California in 1973 and 74, well, there were two things that happened. One was I found a biography of, Philo T. Farnsworth. It was a book written by a man named George Everson, Mm -hmm. who had been one of Farnsworth's benefactors in the 1920s. He wrote a book in 1949 called The Story of Television, The Life of Philo T. Farnsworth. And I just happened to find that book on a shelf in the stacks of the Santa Monica Library. But also that summer, shortly after I went out to California, I had a chance encounter with a community video cable access advocate who went by the name of Johnny Videotape. And I think he was in San Jose, California, and Johnny Videotape knew the guy who had assembled that issue of Radical Software that I'd seen earlier that summer. Yeah. And his name was his name was Phil Geatson. Phil Geetson. And Phil Geatson knew Philo T. Farnsworth the Third and it was through Johnny videotape that I learned of Phil Geatson's stories about Philo T. Farnsworth. And at that point I was pretty well hooked.
0: Yeah. Now let's dive in here to uh the Philo Farnsworth story. It's really fascinating and, and especially that you said uh the ubiquitous nature of television and, and how really a lot of people don't know about the origins of it. For starters, let's talk about Philo as a kid and how he sort of gravitated towards electronics, and and eventually sort of came up with this idea for television, you know, in a very spontaneous sort of manner. What I liked about, especially that first chapter, when the title is something like um, "They Have Electricity Here," it's really amazing to think about a time when electricity was like oh, the closest I can compare it to maybe now is like cable internet back when, you know, when people were trying to get it and if, if if somebody had it, you were jealous, that kind of thing. It was like it reminded me of that in a way.
1: Well, he grew up in in dirt poor farm country in rural Utah. He was born, I think, in, he was born in Provo. No, he was born in, in uh, Beaver Creek, which is down in the southern part of Utah. And his family eventually migrated to a town in Idaho named uh, Rigby, Idaho. And this was when he was about 11 years old, so it would have been around 1917. Mm -hmm. And though he had had exposure to, like, mechanical phonographs and so forth. He really had had no exposure to actual electricity. So the story that you're talking about in the book is when they come over the hill to their new homestead in Rigby, Idaho, he sees that there are wires stretched between the buildings on this homestead, and he shouts out to the family, this place has electricity. Yeah, yeah. And as they descend into the valley where they were going to be living now, he was really going to have his first first-hand experience with electricity. Prior to that, he, he had read about things like the telephone. Uh, he knew about electrical appliances, but I don't think he had ever seen it firsthand until they arrived in Ligby, Idaho. That,
0: that's, just, that's just amazing to think about. Uh-huh.
1: Um, and it, it is I mean, we 're we're talking about a time when when really uh, steam power was still uh, the dominant form of transportation and 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 horses were were common and, and it was it was compared to the environment we live in today it was almost prehistoric times, but he had confided to his father when he was six years old when he first began to learn of this world of invention that was beyond where they lived, he confided in his father his hope that he had, quote, been born an inventor, unquote. And that was the way it was always put to me. He didn't say he wanted to grow up to be an inventor, but he recognized even at that young age that if that's what you're destined to be, that that's something that's pre-coded into your soul's code. And so he told his father that he hoped he had been born an inventor, and, and he began to orchestrate and organize his activities in such a way that might realize that destiny
0: and and all this sort of leads up to uh the idea uh of the television not so much well this is what i kind of want to ask you what what was the mood going on in, in um in electronics at that time was television something that people were talking about as a possibility but they couldn't figure out how to do it Uh, Because that seems to be where he came in. He figured out the mystery of how to actually put together the television and make it work as a viable concept.
1: I think you could say that television may be the most preordained invention in the whole firmament of modern science. Because by the time we get to the 1920s, we've got recorded sound and audio transmission through radio. Yeah and And we've got motion pictures, so we know that pictures can be recorded and and transmitted and And now science is looking for the marriage of the two they're looking for the way to Send pictures through the air the same way sound was being sent through the air by radio, starting in oh I guess the the mid nineteen teens when when audio transmission began over radio so so it was expected that at some point, not far in the future, that the marriage of radio and movies would be accomplished. Yeah. And in fact, the earliest attempts to accomplish that were, in a sense, a marriage of those two technologies. They were an electromechanical contrivance. Mm-hmm. And these devices trace their origins back to about the 1880s when a man named Paul Nipkow first devised a disk scanning device. The the challenge of transmitting pictures over the air is basically to disassemble the image into component parts and then string those component parts together as variations of light and dark, and string those together, transmit them over a wire or through the air, and then synchronize their reassembly on the receiving end. Yeah. And given the mentality of the day, the earliest attempts to achieve that were attempted with mechanical devices, the progenitor of which was the Nifcoff scanning disk. Imagine if he was its a flat disk and poked into the surface of the disk is a spiral of holes. Mm -hmm. And as the disk spins on its axis... Each hole will go past a photoelectric cell, transmitting a different line of light to that cell. Yeah. So now you can see that the mechanical device is transmitting light through this sequence of holes to a photoelectric cell, and you get a sense of how the image is being broken down into individual lines through this scanning sequence.
2: Yeah. Is that clear? Mm-hmm. I got okay. it. Okay.
1: Okay, so that that is the sort of thing that was being experimented with starting in the late nineteenth century,, yeah. and was was anticipated was going to be the way the television was going to be done going forward. But Philo Farnsworth, when he first started reading of these things, he knew that they were not that that system ultimately wasn't going to work. and I think part of his motivation was that having decided that he wanted a career as an inventor, he just sort of made the conclusion that television would be a good thing to invent. Yeah, yeah. That, if, that, that would lay a suitable foundation for a further career as an inventor. Yeah. And... So he began to focus. Probably in the you know, 1919, 1920s, he began to absorb whatever information he could about the science that might be associated with transmitting pictures through the air. He learned first of the photoelectric effect. You know that's what Einstein won his Nobel Prize for in 1923. Mm-hmm. Everybody, of course, associates Einstein with relativity and so forth. But his Nobel Prize was awarded for his quantifying the. Photo- photoelectric effect by which light striking certain metallic surfaces releases electrons. And that's one of the fundamental components of the television system. So he learned about that. He learned about electrons. He learned about magnetic deflection. He learned about cathode ray tubes, which was a new phenomenon at the time. And these are all the elements that are simmering in his brain. Yeah. In the summer of 1921, he wants to invent television. He learned about all these various components of the electronic universe, he knows that a mechanical system is never going to go fast enough to transmit a coherent image. And so he's focusing on all these elements. And then the story is that someday, one day in the summer of 1921, he was writing a behind a device called a disc harrow, which is a field tilling device. It's a bunch of metal discs on an axis. And he was riding this disc harrow behind a horse, and late in the afternoon he reached the end of one of the rows that he had just plowed, in effect. And he turned around and he looked behind him, and he saw the the rows that he had plowed in the dirt, the furrows that he had plowed in the dirt. And the story is that in that instant... He saw how all those elements, electrons, magnetic deflection, and cathode ray tubes, could be combined into a device that would enable him to scan an image with a beam of electrons, line by line, just as he had just plowed this field, line by line, in a vacuum tube. And that is the moment of conception where we go from the mechanical parts of a mechanical television system to a purely electronic television system, which 30 years later became the dominant force in the industry.
0: Exactly, exactly. And uh, it almost kind of reminds me of uh, Tesla, especially uh, since uh, like the AC versus DC sort of uh, thing, too, as well.
1: True. Yeah, there, there, there's there, there's, always something coming in from the fringe. Yeah. And in in this case... This this was, there actually, there had been a couple of suppositions of an electronic system or a cathode ray tube based system. There was a man in England named Campbell Swinton who hypothesized an electronic system. There was a man in Russia named Boris Rosing who hypothesized an electronic system based on cathode ray tubes. But I'm, I'm going to fast forward here because between 19, the summer of 1921 mm-hmm. and the summer of 1927, Yeah. Barnsworth taught himself even more he he, he he now had a concept he learned everything he needed to develop that concept. Uh, he, he really had no no funding at his disposal until uh, sometime in nineteen twenty six and a year later he produces the first workbench laboratory model of the concept that he had when he was a teenager in the summer of 1921. So the the date that we use of the transition, the date of, of realization, is September 7th. 1927 is the day that Farnsworth demonstrated for the first time that an image, that, that, that intelligence could be focused on the bottom of one bottle and reappear on the bottom of another. And so that's sort of the flex point where, where the dream was realized and the transition from mechanical parts to quantum particles was completed. Yeah. Yeah, and then it became a matter of engineering, which took another twenty years.
0: Exactly, exactly. You sort of touched on here uh, an interesting sort of window of time, which is, of course, when he first conceptualized it, and then to when it, when he had the working model. A very painful step for all inventions, because that's when it goes from, you know, you have the idea to trying to get the to trying to actually make it. And Philo went through a lot of interesting sort of steps there. And you mentioned George Everson, who was. I was uh, who he was instrumental, really, in in getting the whole thing up and running. And also, uh, could you touch on a little bit of how they kept going for more funding, but everybody seemed to kind of want a second opinion from someone who was like an expert in in various fields. And every time Philo would demonstrate his idea to them, uh, he always seemed to wow them, and and, and they, they were always like, "This this sounds like a great idea. It's going to work." And and sort of kept kept impressing. Uh, the various skeptics or people who want second opinions.
1: Well, most of the people that he was sharing his ideas with were not expert in the field to, to be able to say for themselves whether or not the ideas that they were hearing might be viable. But what you're describing is a period that begins, I don't remember the exact time, I think probably in the spring, late winter, early spring of 1926. It's been five years now since he's had his idea. And he's been carrying this idea around in his head, wondering where he's ever going to find the means to try to realize it yeah and the story is that at one point he was actually thinking about drawing his ideas up and submitting them to like popular science magazine he was on the verge of giving up really and he got a job during this period in the late winter early spring of 1926 working as first as a clerk for and then eventually elevated himself to the level of manager of a community fund drive in Salt Lake City, Utah. And the man who hired him for that task was a man named George Everson. And he proved himself to be uh, uh, mechanically inclined and and to have a great deal of innate ability, and and George Everson kind of took a liking to him. And the story is that one afternoon when when all the work was done, they were all kind of sitting around and having a a bull session together, and George Everson asked Philo Farnsworth, uh, so what are your plans? Are you going to go to college? Are you going to continue your education? Philo said that he didn't really have the means to do that. I, 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 I think at this point he had stopped calling himself Philo and begun calling himself Phil. Yeah. He had, had dropped the O, and and so we're going to call him Phil from this point out. Sounds good. And uh, he he expressed his his interest. He said he didn't really have the means to go to school, but he mentioned to George Everson that he had this idea. And it had been lurking in the back of his mind for a long time, and he didn't think he was ever going to find the means to develop it. And George Everson took the bait, and he asked Phil to elaborate on his idea, and Phil explained it was a system for television. And George Everson had no idea what he was talking about. The the word television had not reached his ears yet. We're talking about uh, 1926. Yeah. And fortunately, there was another person, a partner of George Everson's, a man named Leslie Gorel. And Gorel had enough technical background to understand what it was that Phil was talking about and to encourage George Everson, who is a man of some means, to take the suggestion seriously. So. George Everson becomes Phil Farnsworth's champion during the summer of 1926 and travels all up and down the West Coast looking for potential backers for this wild idea that he's heard for something called television. Yeah. And he eventually winds up in the inner sanctum of the Crocker Bank in San Francisco, and and as you say, there there were any number of steps, a hoops that Farnsworth had to go through, where he would present his idea to somebody, and whoever he was presenting would say, well, that's a good idea, let's let this guy look at it, yeah, and then they yeah. bring in another guy, and another guy would look at it, and and so he must have presented the idea a half a dozen times over the course of the summer, and and then finally. George Everson meets up with a man named Jess McCarter, who was a colleague of his from the Crocker Bank. And Jess McCarter brings in a guy named Roy Bishop, who is a fairly savvy engineer and industrialist. And then Farnsworth comes up to San Francisco, and George takes him out and gets him a real nice suit. And they go and they do the presentation one more time. And Jess McCarter and Roy Bishop agree that if he will do his presentation for one more guy, <laughs> that maybe they can find the funding for him. And they take him to see a guy named Otto Hahn, who is working on a refrigerator project for something called the Crocker Labs, which was actually one of Roy Bishop's concerns. And he listens. The Farnsworth idea and says yes, he thinks very highly of it, and he thinks it'll work. It'll be very difficult, but he thinks that it's a viable concept. And as a consequence, Jess McCarter and Roy Bishop pool about twenty-five thousand dollars and tell Philo T. Farnsworth that he's got a year to make a picture. So he goes back to Provo, he collects his fiance, a woman named Elma, we called her Pem, and he collects her. They are hastily married, they go out to San Francisco, they set up a laboratory, uh, Pem's brother Cliff comes on board as a glassblower, his precise qualifications for the job being none. Uh, it turns out turns out to be an expert glass blower. He learns everything from scratch and, and produces by hand all the tubes that Phil Farnsworth is going to use to produce the first electronic television system. He's going to create he's going to create not only the camera tube, which is called an image dissector, and the receiver tube, which is a cathode ray tube that Phil called an oscillite, but he creates some of the amplifier tubes as well. And it takes them a year But from the time they set up shop in San Francisco in September of 1926 until September 7th of 1927, they produced a number of early models of the image dissector tube, and come September 1927, they conducted an experiment, and they, they... using an incredibly powerful arc light, they shine the image of a simple straight line that's painted onto a glass slide. They shine this image onto the surface of an image dissector tube, and in the next room where they have the oscillite the cathode ray tube receiver tube, they can see when that image of the straight line is being rotated counterclockwise or clockwise. I can see it vertical or horizontal. Yes. And this tells them that the intelligence, so to speak, this image that's being transmitted on one tube is reappearing on another tube, And that shows them that the principle that Philo T. Farnsworth first had when he was in that potato field in Idaho six years earlier was, in fact, a viable concept and the path
0: to all electronic television. There you go. You were sort of talking about these California days. I really enjoyed the portion sort of that talks about this lab gang and and, and the the amazing Uh folks that Phil assembled at at the lab on 202 Green Street.
1: Talk a little bit about uh-huh. those
0: days. It sounds so. It sounds really exciting. That's the best way I could put it. When I was reading the book, you almost wanted to be there during this time because it sounds like they were just in, doing some amazing stuff uh, in California at that time.
1: Well, I think this is this is the embodiment of, of an axiom I heard a long time ago, and I, I don't know if if somebody else said this or if this is just another old saying that I just made up. <laughs> but there are times there are times when ignorance can be an asset. Because if you don't know what cannot be done, there is nothing that can prevent you from going ahead and doing it. Mm-hmm. And that is essentially the spirit that Philo T. Farnsworth surrounded himself with in the people that he hired to be part of this little nucleus of, of genius that he was forming. Now, the, the point of this exercise is that, remember, going back to the very beginning, Philo T. Farnsworth didn't set out to invent television. Violet T. Farnsworth set out to be an inventor and to to create the means by which he could follow his imagination down whatever path he found it taking him. And so he surrounded himself with creative individuals. I I think the way it was explained to me was it wasn't so much that they had education or experience, but that they had daring and that they were trainable. Yeah. So he was looking for people who, who would, who were not the embodiment of orthodox science, but who shared within that spirit of adventure. And this became this little nucleus of people that we're talking about that he called his lab gang. Yes. Yeah. And they became very much a, a, an intimate group that worked long hours, uh, doing fairly tedious work. But they all were united in their tremendous respect for Philo Farnsworth and his ability to inspire them to stretch themselves and extend themselves into areas that they didn't think they were capable of. And I mentioned Cliff Gardner a moment ago. He was Phil's brother-in-law, and he's, he's pretty much the embodiment of that whole idea. He had no experience in the field of of glass blowing. He had never fabricated a tube, but he wanted to be part of that whole experience and so he went and learned everything that he needed to do and and then and then, because he was not steeped in what everybody knew could not be done, he went ahead and did things that prior to that had not been done,
0: yeah. The invention of television is sort of, we're past the concept part, we're in the actual, uh, it's been made, and as you said, it took 20 years of engineering to sort of fine tune.
1: You can't underestimate, now, before we move on to the engineering phase, I want to emphasize, if I can, the, the importance of this particular contribution, because when you talk about the history of television, you will find detractors and doubters who will tell you that there were hundreds, thousands of people who made contributions along the way, and that is certainly the case. But there, there was a point uh, of transition, there was a flex point there, when everything that went before became obsolete, and everything that came after became possible. And that flex point, that that idea that Farnsworth had in the potato field in 1921, the realization, the workbench model that he demonstrated in 1927, that's the point of transition. That's the pinch in the hourglass. Yes. And, and it, is, it is truly one of the seminal moments... in in scientific history where the transition was completed in effect from a technological environment that was dominated by mechanics and parts to the environment that we live in today that is dominated by particles and quantum mechanics. And all of that took place in Philo Farnsworth's mind and on Philo Farnsworth's workbench, And, and that is the reflex point that made television possible. Now you can start talking about the hundreds and thousands thousands of individuals who made improvements in engineering refinements that made television possible going into the 1940s and 50s. But it was that event, Farnsworth's contribution in 1921 to 1927, that made everything that comes after it possible.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Where were we? Um, Well, what I wanted to say was... um, from there, there's sort of a crux or a, a, a difference of opinion, if you will, with uh, the backers for Philo Farnsworth and Farnsworth himself. He he wanted to stay on the cusp of the development of the television and go through with uh-huh. the steps of engineering. And the bankers, it seemed like there was a constant battle with them not to just sell out and, and, and you know, we, we got it, we made it, we, we made the television, now let's sell it to people that can actually, you know, fine-tune it and, and move it out and, you know, cash out, if you will.
1: Yeah, almost from the moment that Farnsworth did his first demonstration, which would have been a little later in 1927, yeah. and there's one great story in the book where one one of the backers was a, a wizened old banker from the gold rush days named J.J. J. Fagan. And Fagan kept asking or George Jefferson, when are we gonna see some dollar signs in those tubes at Farnsworth? Sure. And when it was time to demonstrate what he had done for his backers, he in fact painted the image of a dollar sign onto a glass slide and when the bankers all came to see what they had created, that was the first image that they saw was the, the image of a dollar sign on the face of a cathode ray tube. But almost with, with, within minutes of, of seeing that, the discussion changes direction, yeah. and and the drift of the whole environment changes. And even Roy Bishop, who had been something of a father figure of Farnsworth at that point, begins discussing the whole enterprise in terms of how are they going to sell it to, quote, one of the big electrical companies. We're now in an environment, we're talking about the late 1920s, where the pioneers of the 19th century, the Edisons, the Bells, the Morses, and so forth, the institutions that they had created, that had been built around their inventions, are now the vested interests of the 20th century. And they had the means, they had the control, they had the economic and financial and political power to control the introduction of new industry from that point. And some of Farnsworth's backers were of a mind to simply surrender what Farnsworth had created to one of those industries to let them continue with the refinement that was going to be necessary. I mean, it was clear at that point that it was going to take a lot of work to get it from the workbench to the marketplace, and, and none of these guys, uh, like Jeff McCarter or Roy Bishop or even George Everson, really had the stomach for what that was going to take. But Phil managed to prevail. Remember, again, he he wanted to maintain this shop, and he he knew that if if they continued the work that they were doing, that that over a period of reasonable time they would develop a portfolio of patents. Not only the original patents, which were obtained in 1930, they were applied for in 1927 and, and issued in 1930. But not only those original patents, but there would be a whole portfolio based on those patents and including all the refinements that they would develop over time, and when the time came to turn that over to some other company, it would be a much more valuable portfolio than if they did it immediately, like back there in 1927 or 28. So he was he was able to prevail upon them to keep the enterprise going. But it was rather burdensome, to put it mildly, because the expenses were ratcheting up rapidly, and they had originally committed uh, $25,000 to the initial enterprise, and by the time Farnsworth produced his first picture in September of 1927, they had spent twice that. So they were they kind of losing patience, but somehow Farnsworth prevailed and managed to get them to continue, and um, he stayed in San Francisco under the aegis of various different configurations until about 1930 or 31. In fact, Roy Bishop, who had been one of the original benefactors, I think he stepped aside and Jeff McCarter became pretty much the prime benefactor. And McCarter was, was really not an industrialist. He was not cut in the George, George Westinghouse or Thomas Edison mold. He was kind of a fast buck artist. Yeah. Yeah, but he became pretty much responsible for Farnsworth's future.
0: Sort of within that realm of time also is when, uh, like you said, there was a big debate to turn it over to uh, one of the big companies, and the big company that seemed to want yes. the television the most was RCA, and, and this is sort of when the yeah. the RCA battle starts. What I found really fascinating and just uh, almost like a movie was the visit by Vladimir Zwarkin to uh, Philo's mm-hmm. lab in San Francisco as a surreptitious yeah. sort of industrial industrialist spying sort of mission, if you will. And it was just fascinating. And from there, of course, uh, there's just a, a lengthy battle with RCA over the patents, and RCA seems to want to gum up the works and keep television from really coming out until they have a control over it. Let's talk about that period there.
1: Sure. Um, we're talking about first about kind of the origins of RCA, which was, we go back to uh, the late 19 teens, and coming out of World War One, the patents of American Marconi had been. Spun off into a separate enterprise. The government was concerned about important technology being in the control of a foreign power, and some of, some of those patents were were vested in General Electric and AT and T. And coming out of World War II, the patents that governed radio, wireless transmission, and so forth, mm-hmm. were spun off into a new company called the Radio Corporation of America, which was kind of jointly owned by. Uh, Westinghouse, AT&T, and, and General Electric, and then we start talking about the whole radio trust where those three giants sort of divvied up the firmament, uh, the, the bandwidth. They would they would all go into certain aspects of electrical industry and stay out of other aspects in order to protect their own business. Yeah. And the radio corporation, I'm, I'm doing a real thumbnail sketch here because it's been a long time since I've visited this material and I'm not really up to speed on it still but that's the essential story there. You wind up with the radio corporation in the early 1920s, and the essence of the radio corporation is that it is the clearinghouse and, and the, the, the bank, so to speak, of all the patents governing radio. And the governing philosophy, the business model that they operated under, was simply that the radio corporation never pays patent royalties. The radio corporation collects patent royalties. Yeah. So that's that's sort of the philosophical business model of the radio corporation, and uh, as the radio corporation is developing, it, it comes under the control of an individual named David Sarnoff. Mm-hmm. Who is a Russian emigre, worked his way up from scratch. Uh, there's lots, lots of war about how Sarnoff achieved his position, but by the mid 1920s, he is kind of a general manager of of the Radio Corporation, and he's pretty much driving that train. And he can see that those patents for radio, which were the foundation of the Radio Corporation's business, were going to be expiring in the near future. So he starts to look over the horizon to see what's coming up next that will take the place of radio so that the, the they can get the jump on developing that technology mm-hmm. and continue to control that technology so that RCA can continue to collect those patent Yeah. And clearly, the next thing on the horizon is television. So David Sarnoff pretty much decides that RCA is going to develop, invent, develop, refine, and introduce television to the world. That became part of his corporate mission. Parallel to that, there is Coincidentally, another Russian émigré. this is a man named Vladimir Zvorkin that you mentioned uh, a moment ago, Mm -hmm. who came to the United States around 1920, and he had worked in Russia with the individual that I mentioned earlier named Boris Rosie, who had postulated a cathode ray tube-based television system. And Zvorkin came to America with those ideas, and he found work with Westinghouse. So we get to 1929, and Zwarkin is working for Westinghouse, where he had applied for a patent a uh, television system in 1923, but the evidence is weak at best that he ever got it to work. So he, he was given different assignments. And, and then you have Sarnoff in 1929. He's fairly well determined that he's gonna to have to get a handle on television. And he learns of this guy at Westinghouse, which was a corporate ally of RCA's, who had done some work on television. So that alliance was formed, I think, in the early part of 1929 or early 1930. So Zorkin and Sarnoff had pretty much agreed to work together, but before Zorkin actually took up residence at the RCA labs in Camden, New Jersey. He made a trip out to the West Coast to see what Philo Farnsworth had on his workbench. Mind you, it's public now because the patents have all been applied for. Yeah. So so knowledge of this technology that's been developed by this maverick kid out in, in San Francisco is circulating among the, the corporate electronic corporate elites of, of the East Coast. So, as Warkin goes, he's on his way from Pittsburgh to Camden, New Jersey. And he makes a side trip to San Francisco on the way. <laughs> and this is in the, the, this is in the spring of 1930. But the fact that there's been an alliance formed between Zwarkin and Sarnoff is unknown to anybody. Yeah. So when he arrives at Farnsworth Laboratory in San Francisco, it's under the guise of seeking a patent license for Westinghouse. Mm -hmm. Now, Westinghouse had a fairly good history of of working with independent inventors, and you know the whole Tesla story. Yeah. So Zorkin arrives in, in San Francisco as a horse of a very different color than he would have been had he come to San Francisco wearing his true stripes, which was that he was on his way to RCA. Yeah. Because Westinghouse had a history of working with other inventors, and RCA had a history of crushing other inventors. Exactly, Yeah. So he shows up at Farnsworth's laboratory, and he's pretty much given the run of the place for about three days. (laughs) And he is shown a a fairly well-advanced version of Farnsworth's image dissector, the camera tube. And he holds that in his hand, and he says, this is a beautiful instrument. I wish that I had invented it. (laughs) <laughs> and he's shown how the the image dissectors are fabricated. The original image dissectors, the the face of the tube, the pickup end of the tube had a domed glass end, and now Cliff Gardner is sealing flat glass into the end of the tube, and working saw that and said, well, my people told me that couldn't be done. And so here you see where the principle of not knowing what couldn't be done serves. Yeah. Because that's that's pretty much what Cliff Gardner says. Well, I didn't know it couldn't be done, so I just went ahead and did it. <laughs> and he shows work and how he fabricated those tubes. He devised a turntable so that he could evenly distribute the heat from the porches. And basically shows work and everything, yeah. not knowing that when Zwarkin left Farnsworth's lab, he called his, uh, he sent a telegram to his colleagues in Pittsburgh with precise specifications for an image dissector tube, and then he headed east. He stopped in Pittsburgh and took that image dissector tube with him, and then he took it to Camden and went to work for RCA.
0: Exactly. And then it seems like uh, at that point, while there's a lot of engineering going on with television, almost like the the process of inventing is, is, is sort of running out of steam in a way. The germination process is over with. Now it's the business end of it. The,
1: the, the seminal period passes from about 1927 until about I, I'd say 1932 to 1933. Because remember I was talking about the period when he wanted to develop the patent portfolio so that yeah. it would have much more to offer. And I think the, the a large part of that part patent portfolio was developed from about 1927 to about 1933 34. And, and and then that's when all the patent litigation begins. Yeah. And, and RCA is basically stymieing Farnsworth's ability to bring this thing to the marketplace through patent litigation. And so it, he's, he's sort of fighting the battle on multiple fronts as we get into the mid-1930s. He's fighting with RCA over the patents. Of course, he's working on the, in the laboratory and, and still developing television. And that, of course, is where he, he gets his energy. But his, he, his work is really starting to take him in different directions. He was beginning to develop stuff that made a contribution to radar, electron microscopes. He's going off in different tangents, but the work of refining and developing television wasn't done yet. And then I, I think what you're getting at is that he began to uh, in, incur the wrath of his own backers who were really losing patience with the whole operation, the costs involved, their inability to take it to market, to realize... Yeah the return on their investment. And so from about 1935 to about 1939, it just became a a nearly untenable situation for Farnsworth. And as we get into the period just before World War II, he's basically withdrawing from uh, uh, daily operations in the laboratory.
0: Exactly, exactly. And it seemed like he wanted to Uh take this even further and get into uh, broadcasting and that kind of thing. And I think that was at the point where where uh, the backers, it was reaching ahead at that point, it seemed like. Yeah,
1: and we were talking about the lab gang, and I can't emphasize enough how the core of people that he had built around him was really the heart of his dream.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's Those were the guys that, that he could toss ideas off to who could realize those dreams on a workbench. And and that was the nucleus of what he saw himself developing going forward. He didn't want to do what he called tacking on the shipping room door. He didn't want to get into manufacturing. He could see at one point that broadcasting was going to be a very lucrative business. And he actually considered adding a broadcasting component to his business. But he always believed that the royalties that were going to be generated by the patents that his enterprise was going to generate, would be sufficient to sustain the enterprise as these various industries that he create got going. But I don't think he ever really reckoned with how difficult it was going to be to contend with the entrenched corporate and institutional interests, all of whom had something at stake as this new technology came in from the periphery and wanted to control the introduction of all that new technology. Yeah. yeah. So he, he pretty much uh, has uh, withdraws from the situation. A decision was made in 1938 to go the manufacturing route. And in nineteen thirty eight and 1939, the Farnsworth Television and Radio Corporation was formed in Fort Wayne, Indiana with the intent to manufacture radios until television became a commercial reality and then go into the television manufacturing So he moves from Philadelphia in nineteen thirty nine and he worked for about a year with the Farnsworth Television and Radio Company in Fort Wayne, and then he basically had what amounted to a low-grade nervous breakdown and retired to a farm that he had set up in Maine. And he basically sat out World War II on the farm in Maine. And what do you think brought about
0: this this nervous breakdown? Was it just that uh, the business end of of the transition for television into the commercial aspect, that whole business aspect, really wore him down? And of course, part of the story that I wanted to talk about, and I think we may have passed it chronologically. But maybe we can throw back to that. Is Jess McCarter and the disillusion of the of the lab gang when he fired everybody? Yeah. I think that had a tremendous impact on on Philo. And it sounds like also a variety of family problems. that seemed to all come ahead, come to a head at this point. Correct?
1: Yeah. Um, like I say, there were a number of circumstances, all of which converged on his withdrawal in 1940. And the the circumstances you're referring to, McCarter firing the lab gang, that was kind of the prologue to the formation of Farnsworth Television and Radio. The story there is that Phil had gone to Europe. He actually had a patent license in in England with a company called Baird, and, and, and that, that's another tangential story. But while he was in Europe in 1936 and, and went to the, he saw television being used at the Berlin Olympics, the Nazi Olympics in 1936, and so forth. But he had also, before he left, he had filed some applications for patents on um, velocity the electron velocity modulation, which was an element of radar research. Yeah. And when he got back, he found out that those patents had been dropped, oh. and allowed to lapse. And so here was the, the evidence of his real dream, developing new technologies, being smothered, and, and when he gets back, he finds the lab is in disarray because Jess McCarger, who has been in charge of the operation financially, has placed in his stead a kind of a manager who really had no idea what he was doing. And, and Phil gets back and he fires this manager, a guy named Russ Pond, and then Jess McCarger comes east, we're in Philadelphia now, he comes east from where he lived in San Francisco, and to make a long story short, uh, it's, it's told in fairly interesting detail in yeah. the book. At that point in nineteen thirty six, Jess McCarter fired the entire lab gang. He walked into he walked out of Phil's office, walked out of the lab and said, You're all fired, go home. Get your stuff and leave, and and that was the end of the dream. That was the shattering of the dream, basically. Yeah, yeah. And and that night, Phil called a few of them to see if they would come back on a scaled-down operation, and all but Cliff Gardner, his brother-in-law, said that they would not come back so long as Jess McCarter was a principal in the operation. He managed to put together a fractional organization. Uh, he was able to continue some work, but the spirit of it was pretty much shot. Exactly. And, and I think that, that that is the seed of, uh, of both the formation of the manufacturing company that he never wanted to be a part of mm-hmm. and the, the, the loss of the dream that he had been working for now 10 or 12 years to develop. And, and, and those are the elements that kind of combine to cause him to withdraw and surrender to some health problems yeah. in 1939.
0: Yeah. Right. And then following this breakdown, it seemed like he kind of got a second wind, and that was the development in his mind and in his, his thoughts and what he wanted to put his energy into inventing next, and that was the fuser, the cusp of technology at the time, which was all this nuclear work going on. He wanted to work on fusion. Yeah,
1: you know, I did an interview recently with somebody for, I think, Discover Magazine, and they asked me, what is the most common misconception regarding Farnsworth's fusion work? And I I answered him quickly. I said, people keep putting the word cold in front of it. And we are not talking about cold fusion, which was this phenomenon, this anomaly uh, that, that was released that caused a great deal of furor starting in 1989 When these guys, Pons and Fleischmann, said that they had produced fusion using palladium rods that were dipped in some kind of solution, and and, and that was called cold fusion because it didn't require the kinds of temperatures that you would find at the center of the sun, which is where fusion occurs naturally. Mm -hmm. Every star in the heavens is basically a nuclear fusion reactor, and... Farnsworth began thinking about this in the 1940s. He he knew that the atomic bomb was being developed. He had actually been asked at one point to join a super secret project out in the, in the mid in, in the Southwest, and he said to, to his wife, Pam, "They're building an atomic bomb, and I want nothing to do with that." Yeah. And um, but but he he started thinking about what remains to this day sort of the holy grail of nuclear energy research. Mm -hmm. There's basically four ways to release the energy that binds atoms together. Two of them involve fission, which is the splitting of atoms, and two of them involve fusion, which is the combining of atoms. Yeah. We have the the two fission propositions we've we've pretty well mastered. We can use controlled fission to produce heat to drive generators. That's what makes nuclear reactors go. And then, of course, we have the uncontrolled release of nuclear energy, which would be an atomic bomb. And we have the uncontrolled release of fusion energy, which would be a hydrogen bomb. But for some reason, we haven't been able to master the controlled release of fusion energy. It is quite a scientific conundrum, because basically what you're trying to do is bottle a star. A fusion reaction is the same reaction that you find at the heart of the star. So what sort of a vessel can you come up with that would enable you to contain the incredible pressures and heats that you would find at the center of a star? What kind of vessel can you come up with that the vessel itself won't cause that reaction to cool and extinguish itself, or the reaction will destroy the vessel? And this is a challenge that has occupied science since probably the mid-1940s. And all kinds of money, billions and billions of dollars have been spent trying to solve this riddle of nuclear fusion, controlled nuclear fusion. And I, I should probably back up and say that the promise of fusion is that if it can ever be mastered, it basically gives us access to a clean and inexhaustible source of nuclear energy. Yeah. The, the fuel that drives a fusion reaction can be anything from, from deuterium, which is a non-radioactive isotope found in hydrogen, down in water, basically, to something called the the boron proton fuel cycle, which is completely non-radioactive, and the the amount of energy, the amount of bang for your buck that you get in a fusion proposition, is is many orders of magnitude greater than what you get for the same mass in a in a fission kind of reaction. Mm-hmm. But but the riddle persists: How do you bottle the star? And, and that was the kind of challenge that Philo Farnsworth found intriguing, and that was what he started thinking about starting in about the mid-1940s. He just started thinking about it. And and, he, and, and there was the, the story is that he had developed an amplifier tube called the multipactor tube in the 1930s, and, and he had built a spherical model of that amplifier tube and he had observed a phenomenon inside that amplifier tube And that phenomenon, fast forward to about 1953, gives him the same kind of conception for a fusion reactor as he had had in the potato field back in 1921 for television. Exactly. That's a great story in the book. From 1953 on, he pretty much devoted his life to developing that fusion reactor that he called the fuser. And at one point, he even had a conversation with Albert Einstein, and Einstein, you know, he kind of withdrew starting in the 1940s because he came became very depressed mm-hmm. at how his theories had been used to level Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And even though he had been pressed in 1939 into encouraging Roosevelt to develop the atomic bomb project, when he saw what it rendered, he was not pleased. Yeah. But when Philo Farnsworth talked to him and had a telephone conversation in, I think, 1948 or 1949, they just... Farnsworth managed to get Einstein on the phone, and this, that story is also in the book. Did mm-hmm. so I mentioned, by the way, the book is called The Boy Who Invented Television, and that it's available on the World Wide Web at farnovision.com.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: So, so in, in the book uh, is, is the story of Philo Farnsworth talking to Albert Einstein about his, his ideas for controlling nuclear fusion. And Einstein says to Farnsworth, This is a brilliant idea. You must pursue this idea. You must publish the math surrounding this idea because what you're talking about are the good parts of my theories. So he he actually had a conception in 1953, and then he spent like the next six years late at night on uh, an electromechanical calculating device called a monromatic calculator. It's like it's like this one-armed bandit where you punch numbers in on a keyboard and then pull a lever to run the calculations. Imagine what this man could have done with a microcomputer at his disposal. Exactly, yeah. But he spent six years running the equations that, that led him ultimately to the design of a tabletop nuclear fusion device. And he started building that device in 1959.
0: And this would be the Fusor. That's
1: the Fusor, F-U-S-O-R. Exactly. And and within a few months of beginning construction on the first model, he was indeed producing controlled nuclear fusion reactors in a device, you know, not much bigger than a a desktop computer.
0: And it's kind of like the same story in a microcosm of of the story of television in the sense that he was being funded by a big corporation at the time and he was so far ahead of the technology that he couldn't really translate it to the business people and it sounded like that diffuser just didn't it never really came together
1: there's there's any number of reasons why we don't all have a fuser in our basement today providing all the electricity that we need to run our houses, which was basically the design that he was pursuing.
2: Mm-hmm. Rather than
1: institutional power generation, Farnsworth was coming up with a device that would be so simple everybody. It was like television. Yeah. It was, it was a device as simple as a television that everybody would have in their basement. But it was also going to generate incredible amounts of energy. And he he wrestled at, at great length with himself over whether it was really reasonable to introduce that kind of technology into a civilization that, yeah, maybe he ain't quite ready for it. And so he had that weighing on, him, and he had the difficulty that he had, again, because he was operating in a realm where really he was the only traveler. Because of of his own experience now, he's got, well, let's think, about 20, 30 years in the trenches having his own unique experience dealing with these quantum particles and these quantum processes. So the, the information that he's dealing with is pretty much his own. And it became very difficult for him to convey to the colleagues that he was now working with in 1959 to 65 the essence of what he was trying to do. And, and as you alluded to, he he had basically lost his company in 1949. Farnsworth Television and Radio had been sold to ITT and T, ironically just as television was taking off. Yeah. And so he became a corporate employee and uh, of, of International Telephone and Telegraph or it and T, and and was beholden to those corporate officers and that board of directors. And at first, they really wanted no part of what he was going to build. And he actually started building it at home in nineteen fifty nine. Huh. And when when the IT and T board got wind of what he was starting to do, they said, Well, if he's really that serious about it, we'll give him enough money to see what he's got. And so they only nominally funded the thing. Yeah. And then they brought in some credentialed Ph.D. types to kind of watch over the operation. And they they brought much more orthodox physics to the table, and they began developing their own sort of corollary developments to what Barnesworth was developing. And it became, a, again, a kind of a contentious environment that he was working in. Exactly. And uh, there, there's a couple of good stories in the book, so I'm not going to spoil them for your listeners, yep. but there's a couple of good stories in the book that that eventually wind up with Farnsworth walking away mm-hmm. from his fusion development in about 1965 and 66. Yeah. I conducted a phone interview with a man named Robert Hirsch. And Hirsch was one of these guys who was brought in to work with Farnsworth who had all the credentials and, and all the, the the credibility supposedly of, of, of institutional orthodox physics. And in fact, Hirsch went on after the Farnsworth experience to, to manage the the whole Department of Energy's fusion research program. So here's a man who knows wherever he speaks, and I asked him point blank, why don't we know if Farnsworth's approach to fusion was viable? Because we don't know. We can't say categorically at this point whether that was a viable approach to fusion or not. Mm -hmm. And, And Bob Hirsch's answer to me was simply they've never put enough money into it. That's but they're amazing. spending, even as we speak, twelve billion dollars to build a dinosaur in France called a tokamak, which is this whirling Russian donut thing
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: using magnetic confinement, using gigantic super-cooled magnets to compress a fusion plasma. They're spending twelve billion dollars on that, but Barnsworth could never get the five or ten million dollars that he might have needed to prove that what he was doing would have left all that in the dust exactly. and it's kind of analogous as you say to to the television process because to my way of thinking the orthodox practitioners of fusion are doing the same thing now that the mechanical television developers were doing in the 1920s mm-hmm. and it's just going to take a completely different approach to the problem to solve it
0: exactly, exactly. Um, and then to, to sort of wrap it up Farnsworth's thoughts on what television became.
1: There's one great anecdote from the 1960s, I guess, where the Farnsworth family was sitting around the living room, and, and he became thoroughly disgusted with whatever was on the TV, and he just got out of his chair and he walked across the room, and he, with some force, switched the TV off, and never again was it turned on. And in fact, when I first met the Farnsworth family in 1975, which was three years after he died in 1972, they had one... Sony, Trinitron on color TV was got about half a picture. So he, he, was, he always believed that television was going to be a great boon to mankind. He, he was kind of a PBS guy yeah. and not so much a commercial television guy. So A lot of what was on commercial television, as he told his son once, well, he just didn't want it in his family's intellectual diet.
0: There you go. Probably not a Survivor fan, in other words. Probably not. Uh, The big picture perspective on this book, uh, which I really enjoyed, is how you try and set the record straight on history and how there seems to have been uh, a corporate rewriting of history as far as who invented television. And the boy who invented television tries to set the record straight once and for all about the actual origins of television. Let's talk uh, about that. Let's close it out here with a discussion on
1: we come full circle here to kind of where the conversation started. Yeah. Why don't we know this fabulous story about this incredible individual who made this seminal contribution to modern culture and society? And I always say that there's three reasons why we are not more familiar with Philo Farnsworth today. And the first reason is that he simply was not survived by a corporation that had a stake in preserving or promoting his legacy. Mm-hmm. The Farnsworth Television and Radio Corporation that might have served that purpose going forward when television started to take off in the late 1940s and early 1950s, that company faltered after World War II. It basically went bankrupt and the assets were absorbed by IT&T in 1949. And over the course of the next couple of years, the Farnsworth Television and Radio Company, the, the company that bore Farnsworth's name, was lost to history. So there's no company surviving that has any stake in promoting the name of Philo T. Farnsworth. Yeah. The second reason is Farnsworth himself was was not the kind of guy who was inclined to dwell on his past accomplishments. Mm -hmm. He was always looking forward, he was always pursuing the next great idea. He was perfectly content to let others pick up the ball that he would leave behind to refine and develop his inventions and bring them to the marketplace. And it just wasn't part of his personality, he didn't have that kind of marketing component, that self-promotion thing, which everybody has today, Mm -hmm. to blow his own horn. Yeah. So that's the second reason why we're not more familiar with Philo T. Farnsworth. And then the third reason is that in the vacuum created by those first two reasons, there are unlimited pretenders who are glad to step up to the throne. Yeah. And chief among those remains RCA. You still see commercials every now and then for RCA, which which insinuates that RCA invented television. And you still run into this Warwick and patent that he filed in 1923, which which was ruled inoperable in 1934. And we didn't even get to that story, but it's but it's in the book. Mm-hmm. And and I still get emails from time to time from people who insist that a man named John Logie Baird who was a Scotsman working in Britain in the 1920s, invented television. And indeed, Baird had some success with a mechanical television system in the mid-1920s. And it was actually transmitting images even before Farnsworth's contribution shows up in 1927. But it was a strictly mechanical system. It was obsolete from the day he turned it on. And there was nothing left of of mechanical television once television began to take root in the culture and the economy in the 1940s and 50s. So so Baird was, in a sense, he he, he managed to get a jalopy to go 90 miles an hour. But if he tried to get it to go any faster than that, it was going to fly apart. There you go, yeah. But that's just another example of, of, of the kind of... Uh, uh, names that you run into of people who believe that they made the seminal contributions to television. And mostly it's RCA, mostly it's Sarnoff. I remember going to Disneyland once and seeing a photograph of David Sarnoff standing next to a television camera. And it was I think it was in some hall in Disney of science or something. The implication was clear that David Sarnoff had invented television. And, And there is this ten now because we live in such a cul- corporate economy, such a corporate culture, to think that everything of, of value comes out of corporations. Yeah. And, and I guess I'll wrap up by saying that that's what we really lose in this story in not recognizing the kind of contribution that a man like Philo T. Farnsworth made, to recognize that the, the, the true genius, the real contributions on some level, always come out of individuals. And now those individuals may all be working for corporations. They all may be working for Apple or Google or Microsoft, but the ideas still come from individuals. They come from inspired individuals. Exactly, And and we have lost sight of that, and the, the time and the period over which we began to lose sight of the contribution of civilization is all embodied in the story of Philo T.
0: Farnsworth. Exactly, and you've done an amazing job of helping to uh, bring Philo Farnsworth back to the to the, to the forefront of this and, and really sort of uh, rediscover his work and, and give him the credit that he deserves, so I, I salute you for that. The book is really amazing. It just sucked you right in. And real page Turner, which was surprising for uh, a biography of a turn-of-the-century inventor, but it was just amazing. Read like a movie at times. It was just awesome. The book is The Boy Who Invented Television. You can pick it up at www.farnovision.com. F A R N O V I S I O N dot com. Paul Shaskin, thank you very much for being on the show. Well, thank you very much for uh, giving me the time. There you have it, folks. That does it for this week's edition of Been All of America Audio. Big thanks to Paul Shaskin for coming on the program. You can find out more information on the book, The Boy Who Invented Television, at the website, www.farnovision.com. F A R N O V I S I O N dot com. And you can find out more about Paul Shaskin at www.49chevy.com. Check out the websites and check out the book. It is a fantastic read. Moving right along now, it's time for Banal of America Audio listener feedback, and this week's letter comes from Richard in Wales. Richard was featured on Banal of America Audio listener feedback the very first week and wrote back quickly thereafter to let me know that he was not from Wales, UK, that Wales is its own entity. So, he is Richard from Wales, and he has written us again. Just wanted to tell you I enjoyed your latest show, and I'm looking forward to next week's. I had only just discovered the Black Vault site recently myself, and was going to write to you to suggest John Greenwald as a possible future guest. So I was very pleased to find out he was going to be on the show. On the Black Vault radio show, Richard Dolan talked about the troubles with the official 9-11 conspiracy theory. Maybe if you ever get him back on the show, you could ask him about how the UFO community and 9-11 truth movement go together what they have in common, and why very few people cross between the two. Other than Richard Dolan, Jim Mars is the only one I can think of who is involved in both movements. All the best, Richard in Wales. Thanks for writing in, Richard. It was good to hear from you again. Regarding the 9-11-slash-ufology feud, semi-feud, whatever you want to call it, I definitely agree with you that there is a serious schism between the two movements. And that is one of the aspects of esoterica that I find fascinating, and I'm sure something that we're going to continue to explore here on the program. And that is how one community and another community under the umbrella of esoterica can seem to get together and often have some serious rivalries. And I'm not just talking about the UFO 9-11 thing. you got to mix in the ghost folks and the Bigfoot people and all the other various main streets and side roads you can go down in Esoterica. It is uh, pretty fascinating, and and something I hope we can explore more. I'm sure we'll have Richard Dolan back on the program again, and I'm sure we're going to get into the 9-11 situation as well, and hopefully explore that aspect of 9-11 versus ufology. So stick around. I'm sure you'll see it on the horizon here for Ben All of America Audio. Thanks for writing in, Richard, and thanks for listening. If you'd like to be a part of Ben All of America Audio listener feedback, Here's how you go about doing it. Go to banalofamerica.com, click the contact button in the top right-hand corner of the screen. That will bring you to the page that shows you how to go about contacting me. Or simply write to boaaudio at hotmail.com, boaaudio at hotmail.com. Either one of those methods will put your correspondence on the road to being featured on Banall of America Audio listener feedback. Time now for the thanks. You hear them every week. Hopefully you appreciate them as much as I do. They are the fantastic binallofamerica.com staff. Leslie, Chiron, Arlie, Jovi, Ralph Molesworth, and Tina Senna. They produce the bulk of the outstanding reading material at binallofamerica.com. They help support and guide the audio series. Without their help and support, we would be a shell of what we are today. So thank you to the fantastic binallofamerica.com staff. Of America.com make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. If you're a longtime BOA Audio listener or an appreciative newcomer and you want to help support the audio series and the website, I have good news for you because we have a way you can do that. Go to beenallofamerica.com, click the PayPal button, and make a donation. No donation is too small. Every donation is hugely appreciated, and all donations go towards keeping Banall of America.com and Banall of America Audio up and running. Next week on the program, we have esoteric pundit and internet darling Mac Tonies. Mac Tonies seem to have exploded on the esoteric scene in the last year or so, and we sat down for a marathon interview. It's going to be a two part edition of BOA Audio and kind of a Interesting little surprise two-part edition. I'll, I'll clue you in on that next week. But for the first installment, we're going to be talking about Mac's first book, After the Martian Apocalypse. We're going to talk about the Mars Anomalies and the Mars Anomaly research community. Mac is a lot like me in a way because he likes to look at the big picture perspective on esoteric studies. And he has some fascinating insight into the Mars Anomaly community. How it started, how it evolved, and some of the big players in that community. We're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about the Martian anomalies. What does Mac think of the face? What does Mac think of some of the other strange things on Mars? And uh, what does he think it all means? Is there a conspiracy or not? We're going to talk all about Martian anomalies next week on BOA Audio with Mac Tonys. And that's merely part one of two. We'll have the preview up for that next week at BOA on Friday, so stop by the website. If you want to hear a little bit about what Matt's going to be talking about, set to some funky music, come back to BOA on Friday for that. On that note, we wrap it up for the week. Thank you very much, folks, for listening. Until you hear from me next week, this is Tim Badal, signing off.